0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Brian Welsh, who's the Chief Medical Officer of the Coleman Behavioral Health in Kent, Ohio. Brian, welcome. Hi. So, Dr. Welsh, tell us a little bit about your role as chief
2: medical officer at the Coleman Behavioral Health. Yeah, we um, we're a behavioral health organization that is a nonprofit organization providing services um, for severely mentally ill individuals. We uh, serve a variety of Uh, We we have a variety of menu of services, depending on our location and which county we're in. In our main location, our head office is in Kent, Ohio. Uh, I'm the chief officer. I oversee uh, clinical protocols, um, procedures. I also supervise psychiatry services, not only in our primary location in Portage County, but also in our other uh, locations in other counties, Trumbull County, Stark County, Summit County, um, allen Ogles, and Hardin counties and down in Jefferson County uh, so you're
1: located throughout the state yes the northeastern part so that's of the why the I sometimes
2: part. have to qualify where mm-hmm. certain services take place gotcha. because uh, one office might have a more smaller array of services and might not be able to provide the same level of service that we have in Portage or out in Lima
1: okay so as it relates to opioid addiction mm-hmm. What do what your services have to offer to families? What do families need to know about your service?
2: Well, in Portage County, uh, we also serve as a, a pre-screening service. So sometimes someone might come in crisis, uh, especially if um, they're addicted to opiates or other substances. And they might also be having mental health issues along with it, where they, the person might be um, undergoing high anxiety Um depression, suicidal thinking. So often they're brought to Coleman for our pre-screening services or crisis intervention services, in which case we'll assess them and see what level of care they need at that time. If the person needs a higher level of care because they're suicidal or they're not safe, um, then we often will refer to psychiatric hospitals in the area. And depending on the level of um, opiate dependence and risk for withdrawal, uh, then we might refer to a, a hospital that would have a dual diagnosis um, treatment. A couple of those hospitals would be Windsor Laurelwood up in Willoughby and St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, which are also capable of managing detoxification. Okay. If the person is not determined to have um, that higher level of need from a psychiatric standpoint, but might need rehab or a detoxification service, we'll often either help them um, call. Um, Looking at their insurance panel, sometimes that's a part of it. Who is the payer source? Who who would the payer source cover? Whether it be Glen Bay or um, other treatment centers in the area will often help them make those phone calls if the person um, is um, safe to go to those places, meaning um, psychiatrically stable enough. Okay. If, Let's ahead.
1: jump into the, the kind of the first step in the process. Yes. If they're if they're heavily, you know, if they're using on a regular basis, then chances are they're going to have to go through detox. Mm-hmm. So, and the challenge here is finding detox. Are you finding that uh, to be challenging, finding the de- availability of detox yeah. when somebody wants to get Yes, absolutely.
2: Sometimes detox beds are full or uh, not coming in high number, uh, especially if the person might be um, have an insurance that doesn't cover uh, a variety of hospitals or they might be uninsured. Hmm. So um, if a detox bed is in need, we will ask often Town Hall 2 in Portage County uh, to help facilitate that. And the Town Hall 2, in turn, usually will use ADM board, um, ADM services in Summit County to help uh, the person get referred into a detox bed. Okay. Um, again, it depends on a lot of times we do see wait lists. and a lot of times we have to tell the person to come back, um, and to keep, keep trying. Um, meanwhile, and we've had patients, um, many times that are waiting to get in, um, and might have, you know, severe withdrawal symptoms that could be life threatening, such from alcohol or benzodiazepines. And so, um, you know, at that time, we we're either advising them to go to the emergency room so they can get proper treatment, or even um, you know try to continue using until they can get into the proper facility.
1: Hmm. That's, that's usually not with
2: opiates because we know how dangerous opiates can be. But the sure. person, a lot of times, people can't tolerate. Um, the opiate withdrawal. So, obviously, that's why they want to keep using. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, let's go back to
2: your services
1: then. Yeah. So, um, the services then that you offer are primarily for people that are insured mm-hmm. and their dual diagnosis,
2: mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. So, we do look for someone that also has a co-occurring mental disorder. Okay. Um, along with uh, addiction. Okay. So, we'll um, often refer to um, our internal services, which takes place on an outpatient basis, um, including psychiatry, counseling, and case management. That's kind of our triad that we really look for treatment in the um, for the addictions treatment as well as the mental health treatment. A lot of times we can also refer to other services such as vocational services. Um, we have a case manager that specializes in housing issues, helping the person apply for housing if that's an issue. Uh, we do see a lot of issues with homelessness. People burn bridges. Um, they can't, mm. you know, they don't have a place to stay. Sure. We see that as being a big issue with even getting the person started in recovery is finding them some stable housing.
1: Okay. So typically somebody goes into detox, and if they need inpatient, they're they're in inpatient for a while, and then they really get passed to you because mm-hmm. all of your work is going to be outpatient. Yes. And um, you've had some success over the course of the past year, year and a half with your medication-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and the options for that.
2: So uh, we started about a a year ago um, uh, prescribing medication-assisted treatment, which is really to work in tandem to the other um, therapies that we wanna provide, which is the counseling, the group counseling, individual um, therapy, and um, the case management services to kinda help coordinate the care. So we wanna make sure the person gets some physical needs met, either through a primary care physician, gets a physical exam, um, laboratory blood work, make sure that they're healthy um, or can start a treatment and uh, make sure that the person's also um, engaged in a 12-step program. When when we kind of uh, do that assessment and the person we feel is ready for the medication assisted part of it, we prescribe either the buprenorphine, which is known as Suboxone, um, or Vivitrol, which is uh, naltrexone, uh, which, is used, which is the opiate blocker, which can be given in an injection form. So, the 30-day shot? Yes, yeah. the 30-day shot.
1: Okay. And what determines which one you prescribe?
2: Well, it's partly patient preference. The patient sometimes will tell us what they feel, uh, will might motivate them, help them recover the best. So, um, a lot of people have a hard time, especially when they've been addicted to opiates for a long time feeling that they're, they're gonna be able to uh, overcome the, the lack of having an opiate. So that low dose of Suboxone can provide kind of a sense of normalcy for that person. Um, they feel more comfortable with that. Sometimes it might be um, uh, that they've been using continuously and we're gonna just, trans- just transition them to Suboxone in order to kind of maintain at least a lower level to decrease their cravings, decrease um, extraneous you know, opiate use and try to control it that way along with kind of getting them um, in the door for the counseling aspect, which I think is very important for the person to learn coping skills, why they use maybe look into um, stability of other mental health symptoms that might have not been addressed in the past. So in a way, the Suboxone is a bit of a carrot, whereas the Vivitrol, um, I would more think about for a person that hasn't been using, maybe they've been in a controlled setting such as jail or prison, Um, They're afraid of using when they get out or the person that doesn't want to be on an opiate at all. They've been through the withdrawal. Mm. um, They've been through detox. They don't want to go back to using, but they feel that constant tug, that constant risk of the relapse. So but not wanting to go back on, say, Suboxone, which is an opiate, they would elect to be on Vivitrol instead. A lot of people like the Vivitrol because it's not an opiate. It's not addictive. Um, but, and, and because it comes in the shot form, the family, the court, the probation officer, the patient, um, knows that it's in their system and it it in and of itself, psychologically can help with reducing craving.
1: Sure. They can't get high. They can't have that weak moment.
2: So it kind of takes it off the table. Um, in both situations, one of our issues that we often deal with is. Um, other drug use, whether it be cocaine, crack, meth, um, marijuana, alcohol. So yeah. part of our program is that we're going to want to make sure that the person is also going to be sober from other drugs. I mean, obviously, we're not going to, I don't want to prescribe Suboxone, a controlled substance very, you know, that's also addictive itself, and have the person use other drugs. Sure. So I'm really trying to, We're again, part of this counseling piece and wrapping them up into other treatments is really making sure that they are involved in the program and also not using other other substances so we'll do weekly random tox screens if they test positive for something it doesn't mean they're going to get get kicked out it just means we're going to address the issue and see what's going on um if it's something dangerous then yeah i might kick them up kick it up to a higher level of care like a rehab facility so if somebody's on suboxone and uh, we find fentanyl in their system. And I say, yeah, I use fentanyl. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to die while well, well, I'm just giving you Suboxone. I'm doing this to keep you alive. And if you're not able to do it that way, then I can't keep you alive that way. I mean, you're gonna have to go to a higher level of um, care, at least until we figure out what, what the relapse was about. But I wanted the person to be safe. Yeah. If somebody's smoking pot, which um, you know, is also um, you know, considered illegal, it's uh, illegal in a lot yes. more states. In fact, today, after yeah. yesterday's
1: election, I <laughs> yeah. think there was what? Three more states that passed it, yes. recreational yes. marijuana, that is.
2: So um, it um, is still something that we're going to address. Um, and again, um, some somebody can say, well, you know, I was just with friends. They were smoking. I got a contact and, you know, or yeah, but I don't want it to be a slippery slope where we say, OK, this is going to be allowed. Um there is the no, no harm reduction model where we don't necessarily want to kick people off just because of using pot, but I also don't want, I want the person to be clear that, especially if it's Suboxone, that I really want them to um, maintain sobriety from all drugs. Yeah.
1: That makes your job really, I would say, pretty difficult. It is, because I don't them
2: want them. to um, take away the something that the person really feels is keeping them from using opiates and might kill them. Yeah, so that's kind of where um, we really want to wrap up the person and make sure, hey, you know, we gotta we gotta figure this out.
1: Yeah. Um, In your experience, how long does it take for the average person to uh, cleanse their brain? I'll call it of the effects of opioids from opioid addiction. um, I know you know detox and just the rest of your body, not long, but your brain a long time.
2: Yeah, it takes a long time so sometimes it depends on the length of time they've been used the person's been using Mm -hmm. Um, i as part of my consultation work with uh, neocap Mm -hmm. um, i've seen people that uh, with just horrendous stories of use and um, this is their longest period of sobriety sometimes and they might have been just sitting in jail before they went to neocap and um, so they might have six months, eight months of sobriety, yet their brains, you can tell, are just still, just not recovered from this long-term opiate use, and they still feel like they're in withdrawal. So, um, you know, I've heard different formulas. You know, for somebody, you know, how long does it take the brain to recover? To, you know, if you've used uh, X amount for this amount of time, then it's going to take you six months to a year, you know, it, again, it depends, but I don't want to tell somebody an absolute, an sure. absolute number, yeah. because the last thing I want to tell someone is mm. it's going to be a year before you feel normal again. Yeah. But I do want to let the person know that um, getting out the door from detox does not, is you're not going to feel well for a while. No. Okay. And so we do see a lot of issues with anxiety, insomnia, restlessness, that, 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 what we call mood dysphoria, meaning they're just either irritable or depressed and they just don't feel well. They miss that feeling of the, that the opiate gave them, the sense of well being. Sure. And um, it's really hard to achieve that. Um, and so, one of our goals, obviously, in our program with the dual diagnosis is is I'm going to look and see what medicines or how can I better treat the depression and anxiety? What in counseling can we address to treat those underlying issues? post-traumatic stress disorder, an underlying anxiety disorder that the person um, was suffering and never really addressed. Um, Or maybe even, I'm even ready to conceptualize adding in meditation, relaxation, yoga, something Hmm. to to, um, help the person learn other ways to cope um, with, again, that kind of lack of having the opiate in their system after their brains have been so used to that. Yeah. Wow.
1: So that due to the the length of time that it takes, that just that has to make your job really, really challenging. Just knowing that you could get eight months into the program with them and they could wake up one morning and it could be like they just used the day before because of a trigger or whatever.
2: Which is my concern. Um, And and, uh, one of the reasons that we do the program set up the way we do it, which is. Um, starting with daily dosing, um, making sure we know the person, we know, we get to know them really well because we see them frequently. And actually, the patients have a lot of good feedback about it too. Even people that are not in the program right now, because of um, you know for various reasons, have said they really like the constant contact, the constant support from seeing the nurse every day, knowing that they were accountable with us, and that we really did care. You know what was going on. Um, So they really appreciated that kind of sense of um, there's somebody looking out for me. And as we go on with the daily dosing, we might spread it out twice a week, um, maybe go to once a week if the person is doing well. And, um, you know, but I don't know with like with the same question, like I don't want them to wake up someday and say, I want to go use. Enough's enough. You know, it's tugging at me, you know, for whatever reason. And trying to figure that out. I don't want the person to be kind of lost, like they're done with counseling, they don't have a counselor to talk to. They're done with, um, they see me once a month, or um, they're not checking in with the nurse frequently. So there's no one to say, hey, I'm feeling this tug, because I would rather react with changing a dose or looking what's going on, um, which we do frequently in looking at, not necessarily changing the Suboxone dose, which we can. Uh, but changing their other medicines, treating uh, recurrent depression that's coming up, mm-hmm. treating a recurrent anxiety, you know, it, it, some of these mood and anxiety symptoms are extremely uncomfortable to the person and, and they want it, they go to what they know is going to make them feel better. Sure. And I don't blame somebody for that.
1: Yeah. And it's so tough because those drugs to get them just right, it takes time. It's not like, you know, slipping an Advil. That's right. And, and, and people do, the chemical reaction just th- takes time yeah. in your system.
2: So, I mean, days or weeks, right? Yes. And 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 you brought up an excellent point. It is very challenging to to, to treat the person who's been using opiates for a long time and are, are trying to get used to not having the opiate, and I'm trying to treat an anxiety or a depression, but it's not feeling the same. First of all, they don't get an immediate effect from an antidepressant. And, and that's the other concern is, um, sometimes um, seeking for benzodiazepines, which can also be playing with fire. Certainly, um, in my practice, even before doing Suboxone uh, medication, and medication-assisted treatment, um, I was very conservative, and still am, with prescribing medicines like Xanax, Valium, Ativan, uh, because of the addiction potent- potential. And um, it's even much more dangerous to prescribe in the opiate-dependent individual. Why is that? Um, uh, the risk of overdose is um, greatly increased uh, because um, both are antidepress- uh, both are respiratory depressants so the risk of overdose um, in combination with sedatives is much increased um, the risk of fatal overdose okay. so so um, that's one of my concerns, too, is that if somebody does have um, benzodiazepines in their system, when we're getting them started on suboxone, I'm going to say, hey, we, we got to make sure this either level falls off, that you're not using anymore, or if you're getting it prescribed, I'm going to work with the other doctor not to pre- have it prescribed. And then again, we're trying to treat anxiety without a benzo. The person's used to that kind of immediate relief they would get from that medicine because they work remarkably well, and and but they can be very addictive and... Um, Huge problems with that as
1: well. So um, what's broken about our system when it comes to treating opioid addiction?
2: Well, we still um, are fragmented. I think part of the issue is... um, Oh, so describe the fragmentation. Well, part of it is payer source issue, like I mentioned. Uh, Perhaps in one insurance pays for one hospital and then they don't pay for the next or... um, You know, somebody without insurance has a limited uh, uh, availability of detox beds or services that they can get, have access to. Um, Even in, say, Portage County, um, we are not the primary alcohol and drug treatment provider, Town Hall Mm -hmm. 2 is. So um, we would often refer to Town Hall 2 if that's what the person needed. Um, Before I was doing the uh, Medication assisted treatment, that's what I would do. If somebody was, you know, addicted, I would try to meet them where they were at and try to uh, work with them. But generally, I was saying, well, you got to call town hall too, you know. We could, and so we didn't have the uh, dual diagnosis um, group therapy. We didn't have a, a, a specified alcohol and drug counselor that would work with us internally. So I felt like I was kind of referring out mm-hmm. um, instead of. Treating within, so now we, we're, we're working on that system, but we still have a payer source issue. In that, um, if the person comes in uninsured, um, then you know we're going to try to work with them, but our mental health board is going to pay for their alcohol and drug treatment at Town Hall too. It's kind of like a, a, sure. a billing
1: issue. So, but most people, if they're uninsured and really don't have much income, or they're going to qualify for Medicaid.
2: Right. Yes, and so Medicaid has opened up the door, mm-hmm. certainly, and that, which that's case, made it a lot more accessible. So you can Thank you. help them. Thank you. Yes. Get
1: signed up for Medicaid. Yes, and then they can go into your program, yes. and but and that doesn't take long—couple a couple of days, right, or less. Uh, right? I was going to say sometimes
2: within a month. Um, depends. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. It, it, you, people can qualify a lot more easier than it used to be. I mean, it used to be that we didn't have that. Um, you know, before expanded. Uh, Insurance, but for expanded Medicaid in Ohio, um, a lot of people would just never get it, be able to get it. Um, now, sometimes it takes; a few, it could take a few days. Sometimes it takes longer. It depends on you know paperwork issues. Got
1: it. Okay. So the fragmented, uh, you know, um, recovery options that people have. Mm-hmm. What else? How else is it broken? The system broken. How do we fix the system? I
2: guess. Um, well, I think that. Um, Part of it is more training uh, for doctors in probably medical school in in their residencies. How much um, do they
1: get on average? Not much. Not much. As I
2: understand it. No, not like, much.
1: Less than a day, right?
2: And yeah, probably or whatever experience they pick up while they're in their training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a primary care doctor's office, um, even if they weren't necessarily saying they would prescribe suboxone but if they knew more how to kind of. Deal with the signs, symptoms of possible use. The signs, um, the flags. Um, instead of saying I can't deal with this right now, and you know they might be able to kind of start, you know, intervention. Sure, there's a sort. formal program, in fact,
1: that they could use, yeah. which is Cbert mm-hmm. where they could qualify, you know, uh, people that and, and refer them out mm-hmm. if they uh, if they do need help. Yeah if you will. So a lot
2: of our issues are um, access to care, um, capacity issues, um, the, um, sometimes the barrier could be as simple as transportation. You know, We always thought, I always thought it would be great if um, you know we had some way to kind of make sure people could get to appointments because a lot of times I have patients who say, "I, I you know, Portage County is somewhat semi-rural, so we have outlying areas. Uh, where, um, people have a hard time, you know, getting in, um, like I said, you know, a lot of times we have issues with, um, getting people enrolled with, you know, issues with compliance, um, showing up, you know, mm-hmm. that there are other kind of barriers. It's like,
1: yep. So if you had unlimited resources to fight the opioid epidemic, what would you do?
2: Um, well, I think, I, I guess my first thought is, um, more of me, <laughs> you know, maybe have another physician. Yeah. Um, if I had a number of resources, I could pay, you know, for another doctor or, you know, have, again, it's, sometimes it's access to, you know, we only so money, doctors, psychiatrists. Um, that's why I employ as a psychiatrist that could prescribe the Suboxone or do what I'm doing along with me, but also be available to be at team meetings, you know, and do kind of what I'm doing, um, but more of it, you know, so kind of open up the door more for more patients. Because right now sometimes there's a bottleneck like even getting in to see me. Hmm. Oh, really? Um, I'm full. I mean, yeah. I have a full capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of my issues is, seeing new patients, which I can, and I still do. But your waiting um, list is? Um, it depends. We try to keep the waiting list. We prioritize post-hospital um, new patients. Sure. So patients that are coming out of the hospital. Um, if somebody comes in, I do have time reserved for medication-assisted treatment um, patients. So if, if, a, if they can see, if, if they are seeing a current provider with us, um, and they are interested in Suboxone, then they can be referred internally to me and I don't need to have a full eval with them, meaning they've already had their initial psychiatric evaluation by, say, mm-hmm. a nurse practitioner, and then they could be referred to me internally, and then I could see them for a short period of time, which is easier in my schedule to find those short period of times. So that's part of the issue is sometimes finding those times for people that are interested in treatment. So... Um, getting in them in to see a provider, so you know hopefully their transportation works out that they can kind of see a provider, um, say at Coleman a therapist that can do the essential intake information, determine what their needs are, and then do a referral. So if somebody says um, I'm, I'm interested in being on Suboxone, so they come in, they get a diagnostic assessment, and then from there they meet with they they would start probably the therapist with the therapist right away, get in their schedule. And then from there they're referred in um, to me. One of the issues is is they stop showing up for some reason. Hmm. You know they can't get in to see me because they're not going to the appointment's not going to be made if they're not coming in to see the therapist anymore. But if they're using drugs, sometimes that's not the highest priority. You know things become very chaotic.
1: Yep.
2: So that's one of our issues. And to answer your question, if I had, like, a, an unlimited amount of resources, I would probably increase my space and increase my providers to have quicker access. And we try to work on, that's one of our um, goals, is to work on fast access into our psychiatry, um, being that people need to maintain or get started on any medication for their mental health issues, let alone mm-hmm. for medication-assisted treatment. Sure. Um At the jail, like I said, um, we're working on the protocol to at least get things started there. So because I'm the psychiatrist at the Portage County Jail, I can see people while they're there, get them do their assessment, um, get their lab work done, and then um, have everything set to start Vivitrol when they get out.
1: So um, no consideration to do treatment of
2: Vivitrol while they're in? Well, no, apparently uh, what we we discussed with the jail and with the um, jail administration at the table and also the um, health provider that provides the medical, uh, the nurses, the medical team in mm-hmm. the jail and myself and Coleman kind of talked about kind of the protocol, what would work best. And they really determined that they would rather that the Vivitrol not be given at the jail than oh. it be given um, upon release. Yeah. Um, I think that the um, health provider um, just did not want to take on the cost or liability. Hmm. The cost is actually right now being funneled through a grant through the Mental Health Board through Portage County. So our workaround is that um, we're going to start their injection the day they get out of jail so that we coordinate. I can get them started on the oral form while they're at the jail And then um, the day of their discharge, coordinate transportation over for their first injection. Okay. So you still have that,
1: uh, the gap minimized from the time that they get out. Yeah. Because so many of them, they detox the tough way in jail. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they've gone through that whole process. And the minute that they get out, if they've got a gap at all, they're out using. That's right. And so. I would be, yeah, and I
2: would lose people that way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so so um, I'd much rather have that gap closed. Because yeah. um, the other possibility is we have somebody from Coleman come over, you know, and provide the shot there before the person leaves there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so. that's a good question. you know, we kind of worked on different protocols, how different jails have worked um, their Vivitrol programs. Um and so the, the, the thought was that we try to keep the vivitrol at Coleman.
1: Okay, so um, the difference between that you've seen, can you speak to successes of medication assisted treatment versus abstinence?
2: What do you what do you see? Well, I've been because I've been treating so many people say at NeoCap um, over the course of many of uh, the last few years and at the jail and just my own patient population that's had addictions issues um, what i saw was that there was a high risk of relapse Um, so abstinence um, for some people can work but just because the numbers just don't pan out it's going to work for everyone and the risk of relapse is so high and the risk of um, death down the line is so high Um, that's one of the reasons I was willing to prescribe the Suboxone. Um, initially, um, I was very reluctant. I didn't want to really have anything to do with it. The only reason I got certified was because our, um, our offices in Lima were doing Suboxone and I just wanted to get the certification so I could uh, properly be medical director and, and, Mm -hmm. and have the supervision. After I did the training, I realized, um, you know of the importance of the program and how it can work and how it can save lives so i was more more willing to consider it um and then of course when i told my administration hey i got the certification they say okay when can you start prescribing and i said ah uh, not so fast um, and that's because i saw I, and i still do see many problems with suboxone um including the diversion abuse um, the abuse mm-hmm. um and that's one of the reasons we went to the daily dosing, um, just to kind of limit the person's supply, their, their take-home supply, especially when getting started. Because the person who wants to use heroin is going to do what they can to use heroin. So if you get them Suboxone and swear $30 a pill on the street, they're going to go sell it. And, and Suboxone is really widely available on the street. And I know that because that's what my patients tell me. That's what I hear from the jail. That's what I hear from Neocat. Um, so why would they do that on the street?
1: Why would they do that versus heroin? Heroin's $10. somebody $10, would buy. $10 and $10 it, a it, year. That's a good
2: question because some people want to. They they feel that the suboxone helps them, but they want to stay on it. Um, and, and some people use it and don't realize that it's gonna it then it themselves is gonna get them addicted. So they become addicted to suboxone. So that's what they want to keep using. Mm. So it has a lot of street value. Yeah. Um. People see it as being a safer option than using heroin. But. I um, guess I couldn't
1: argue with that. Would yeah, you argue with that? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Right.
2: Cause you uh-huh. know what's in it, right? Don't you? Yes. Pretty much suboxone. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. So many different aspects of this, you know?
2: Yeah. And so, I, and I see that's what, you know, and I've seen many different aspects and I get to talk to people that have been prescribed suboxone in the past and failed out for whatever reason. Um, meaning they relapsed either while they were on it or they stopped it hmm. um, either at the advice of the physician that was prescribing it. i um, saying, okay, it's been nine months, it's been a year, you can stop now. And then they would relapse. So that was lesson learned. Yep. If somebody's doing well on it, you keep them on it.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you something. What about methadone?
2: Um, I'm in favor of methadone, but methadone is a tightly regulated Opiate agonist treatment—that's really only relegated to specific centers that are approved to uh, prescribe and dispense. So it's highly regulated, which is um, kind of the whole background about opiate treat opiate dependent treatment um, with uh, what we call agonist therapy. You know, keeping them on a low dose of something controlled. So methadone's been around for a long time, but really only available in major city centers um, Cleveland, Youngstown, Akron around here. So that was a, a, access to care issue plus, because they do daily dosing, which again, I said I'm in favor of, um, they really kind of kept, per, you know, kept an eye on what was going on with the person. And, um, you know, the person, the person was able to be well served there, but you know, that was, it wasn't, it wasn't very, um, accessible. For a population at large, which is why they came up with um, providing an outpatient-based surface, such as Suboxone, where you would certify the, a doctor to provide this treatment out of the office. So primary care physicians, um, psychiatrists could be trained to prescribe Suboxone and provide it for a lot more people. Um, and, and, and the push is still to prescribe, you know, to find more providers that can still do that to, again... Um, so the trend is going away from methadone or anything, and it's more yeah. towards
1: suboxone and Vivitrol, that type of thing. Um, but methadone would be something in an appropriate situation. You wouldn't turn turn away from that by any means. That may,
2: in fact, be a, a, yeah. a good... Yeah, if the person... And I've had patients who've done really well on methadone, mm-hmm. and they really want, they want to always stay on their methadone, and that's what mm-hmm. they know, and that's what they trust, and that's mm-hmm. what kept them from using... Um, and so I would never say you shouldn't do that. Um, I mean, i kind of doing the same thing if I'm prescribing, you know, that amount of opiate through Suboxone. Hmm. Um, the methadone programs, the, the biggest issue is, is really sometimes the location. You know, they're just too inaccessible. Having to travel to, you know, a, a bigger city bigger center sure. from Portage County or sure. rural areas, it's yeah. harder impractical yeah. in, in a lot of cases yeah. probably
1: okay great so um before i leave you go let's uh talk about some success stories
2: okay um well we have um had people both still on suboxone that are doing really well um mm-hmm. in fact we've had a couple of uh, one one lady that i've had since the beginning um, so how long now she's been on it for a year she's been on it and for a friend we helped provide her um, a housing so she when she came to us um, i believe she was living with her mother but her sister had uh, was disapproving of that because uh, um, the patient was had legal history um, drug use history so there was concerns about her taking advantage of mom mom was so, enabling so, yes. she felt so uh, eventually we were able to help her sustain housing She was able to obtain job, um, stayed on Suboxone, um, low dose. Um, She had, in fact, was welcome to speak for our Coleman board about how the program's working for her. Um, She spoke for um, NAMI, National Alliance for Mentally Ill um, at a meeting to just kind of say, hey, this program's what's keeping me going, keeping me alive. She was, uh, you know, heroin dependent. Um, Very thankful. She does really well. Um, again, we, she is somebody that we keep our eye on. And, and in, in the past year, uh, she's had a lot of stress. Her daughter uses. And mm-hmm. um, so she, of course, very worried about her daughter. Um, she's had some relationship issues. So she really worries, um, but appreciates the support she's getting from us. She, you know, she's constantly filling us in mm-hmm. on how she's feeling, what's going on. Sometimes I've had to adjust her medication over time. We had another guy um, that ended up using uh, cocaine while he was in our program. We ended up saying, okay, you have to go get a higher level of care. You know, he had two slips. Um, So that means a higher level of care means you're really recommending
1: that he goes to an inpatient program.
2: An inpatient program or even um, maybe a halfway house that can, you know, also involve him in intensive outpatient programming more than what we provide. So, um, and he did that and um, he continues to see us. He did the outpatient program. He did the, uh, in, in an intensive outpatient intensive program outpatient. at a halfway house. Yeah, okay. And, um, but constantly comes in saying how appreciative, he's not on Suboxone right now and he doesn't want to be back on it, um, but how appreciative he is of our support, meaning, um, you know, he still comes sees us. Um, still sees a therapist, still, still comes to group, um, even though that's not a requirement of him, but he appreciated everything we were doing for him mm-hmm. while he was in the program on the Suboxone um, because that, that was kind of our requirements of him, but he really appreciated that. Uh, we really sincerely did care that he was using and relapsed on something else, even though it wasn't opiates. We didn't want it to be kind of the slippery slope where, oh, okay, you know, little cocaine's yep. okay. It's not the same thing. You know, No, we're going to address it. Yeah. And um, I think he sincerely knew that we were getting very concerned. That's and so he, he comes back and says, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know?
1: That's got to keep you going. Yeah. And that yeah.
2: keeps us going.
1: So, uh, Doctor, I really appreciate your time today. What final uh, thoughts would you have that you'd like to share with uh, our listeners about the opioid epidemic in general? Uh, and maybe how our listeners could make a difference in their communities.
2: Well, I you know, I, I sometimes think of in terms of what's happening politically. Um, I don't know how the changes will take place after yesterday's election. Nobody does. Um, but I think there's a high level of interest, um, both in governmental policy right now, about how we're managing the opiate epidemic, because um, of the high cost of lives, high cost of the legal system, high cost, you know, that just trickles down to medical issues, you know, management of, you know, hepatitis and and HIV and things. So I think it it seems like the direction things would go, hopefully, is that it continues to um, bring in more demand for services. And when there's a demand for services, hopefully there's kind of funding sources, whether it be, you know, uh, community action grants or uh, public funding through uh, levies. You know, that that's one thing that I think people can kind of say, that's what we need to keep doing is keep pressure on politics to kind of keep that funding going. Um, that's why I say, I don't know how things will go with the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I kind of fear words that he, you know, you know, get rid of Obamacare, get rid of, you know, I, I would hate to see what would happen if suddenly expanded Medicaid was yanked again. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's something that we as a, um, you know, community need to constantly kind of be vigilant about because. That was, you know, like that was a wonderful thing for a lot of patients to increase access to care by getting Medicaid. And if you suddenly went to a different criteria, you know, that could really kind of bounce a lot of people out. Of pulls treatment. the rug out from underneath a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. You know, I think I think individually, what can a person do to kind of make a difference? Obviously, it's you know, I you know, there's really really great family advocates that call on behalf of their loved ones and say can you please help me you know and we will try to help where that where that person you know might be at and give them advice or give them direction uh it's always not um an easy system to maneuver because it is somewhat like i said fractured and you know sometimes you get bounced one place and then you're told oh no we don't do that here and then you know, and you kind of hate for that to happen. But again, you know, just kind of keep calling, just saying what can be done next or my son or my wife is, you know, whatever it is. Advocate for your loved Advocate ones. Advocate for your loved ones. Yeah. Just, you know, and I really always have appreciated when family members will call and leave me, even if they tell me, tell, don't tell them, I, tell them I said, but this is what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. let your doc let the doctors know. You know, because if you even have to call the primary care doctor and say, can you please, you know, let, you know, try to give him some direction he's been using, you know, or if they're abusing something that the primary care doctors or the pain medicine doctors are prescribing, got to call the doctors and let them know, you know, and, and, and I really hope the doctors respond to that. They don't always, you know, and that that's a shame, but, um, you know, it's just that's one of those things that makes doctors look bad is if they get calls from family members saying, my son or whoever it is is abusing their meds, selling their meds. And if that doctor's still prescribing it without doing anything else, then shame on them. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem.
1: Yeah. And I think with more and more communication and
2: more of uh,
1: the just, Having everyone talk about this and raise this issue, mm-hmm. um, those practices kind of um, those are fading, is the the sense that I get anyhow. Yeah, out there. I think
2: right now there's a lot more scrutiny on doctors on how they're prescribing. Uh, family doctors um, are, are are been very reluctant to continue people on pain medicines, which is great. They'll often um, you know suggest referrals to pain management clinics. Pain management clinics aren't necessarily seeing things the same way either but um that's where you know that's where their kind of role is is to kind of try to balance individual patients needs and the risks and the benefits but i see a lot of people now um being recommended for other treatments you know looking more at nerve blocks and um other modalities of treatment pushing back on you know hey you got to do some physical therapy first before we kind of jump into this or um you know now with um Again, with uh, state regulations, um, through the ORS reporting, uh, which has been really eye-opening for a lot of doctors. Um, and
1: your team participates in that. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah.
2: We do. You know, that's another um, you know, step in our process is doing an ORS report and seeing what other things have been prescribed or what their history is.
1: So you're able to look on the ORS report, which is a statewide report mm-hmm. that is a database. Mm-hmm. You go online and you look it up to see if they've been prescribed anything
2: uh, from another physician. Yeah, it's only controlled substances. That's through the Board of Pharmacy. Um, but yeah, it gives uh, information about every pres- uh, controlled substance that was prescribed to that individual um, and by which doctor, filled at which pharmacy, how they paid for it, uh, which can be very telling because sometimes they use insurance, sometimes they use cash, sometimes mm-hmm. use different pharmacies. Um, and that can often be a flag for people. Real quickly, you can tell if yeah. they're abusing from yes. that, right? Whereas before, before people would check that, you wouldn't know. Yeah, You wouldn't know unless sometimes a pharmacist would be pretty astute enough to, to call the doctor sure. and let them know, hey, I think, you know, this person might be having a problem. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of doctors are now being reeducated about what how to better manage pain. You know, primary, I mean, ER doctors are also much more reluctant to discharge somebody on a 30 day supply. You know, they're going to give somebody, if anything, um, three days of something and.
1: Um, Yeah.
2: Terrific. Final Uh, thought. uh, Thank you for having me. Um, You know, I I think this is um, kind of a really good venue. Um, It sounds like you've had some really good interviews. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We've been fortunate to interview people from many different uh, spectrums of of the same issue. The opioid epidemic. I mean, from. Treatment facilities, all the way through community uh, housing, through uh, harm reduction and spending time on the needle exchange, and so yeah. Uh, so,
2: and it, like you said, there's so many different aspects. There really are to the problem. Yeah. And even if you look at the different aspects of one singular treatment, even buprenorphine, or the singular aspects of Vivitrol, becomes you get these different facets and angles that you don't even think about. Yeah. So it's been very, it's been um, a great learning experience for me. Um, I often said I was a, you know, I'm a small town psychiatrist. I practice bread and butter psychiatry for community health, you know, and I did not think I was going to be, it's um, part of this treatment, you know, and, and rolled into this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of happened to do it and I've loved it. Um, it has its challenges um, for sure, because you deal with a whole different set of uh, behaviors. Um, that you're not you may not have been prepared for sure and that's kind of where um, there's that learning curve yeah but we do this as a treatment team approach which works really well we meet once a week and kind of discuss uh, everyone in that we're treating referrals that are coming in um, discussing where the people are at what their needs might be um, so so we have the counselor case manager myself um, the nurse um, different representatives from different facets of that person's treatment and um, really try to align ourselves with how to approach an issue, whether it be, okay, this is what's going on with this person. How can we manage this? You know.
1: Well, thanks very much. Okay. We've been visiting today with Dr. Welsh, Dr. Brian Welsh, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the Coleman Behavioral Health in Kent, Ohio. So once again, Doctor, thank you. Thank you. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources, and thank you for joining us for this podcast.